Would you turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 17, John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they will have believed that you sent me. I'm preparing them, I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not ask that, they, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but I also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. O oh, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because, I, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me 
maybe in them, and I in them. It's interesting. It's kind of like you're going into the inner sanctum, right? One author called it the Holy of Holies or the true Lord's Prayer. It's almost like you've entered the royal palace and you get to eavesdrop on a conversation between the king and the royal crown. And as you're eavesdropping, you're getting a sense that this is a very private conversation. You know, we have public conversations in church, but there's some intimate conversations that you have with your spouse or with your children in your home that is so private. Well, we have the privilege by this prayer to be there right now with Christ, hearing his communication with his Father and what he's sharing with us. What, a, what an amazing privilege this is. What a blessing. As we've been going through this um, upper room discourse, we have been seeing right from chapter 13 following that Jesus Christ has been preparing his own for his leaving. He's been preparing his own and he's been instructing his disciples. And so now he ends this instruction of his disciples with intercession. He goes from instructing his disciples to intercession before his father. He starts to lift a prayer to his father for his disciples that he's been training It's an amazing thing. He moves from speaking to his disciples to speaking to God. I don't know if you noticed as I was going through that prayer, how many times there were repeated themes from this upper room discourse. Did you hear them? I I just marked down some of them. Glorify, eternal life, joy, sanctify. The fact that he has been brought here to this earth, union with Christ, participation with the Godhead, and the love of God were repeated themes over and over and over again in this sermon, in this prayer. So this morning, to be honest, I got a little overwhelmed when I looked at this passage. You know, when I, uh, we all have different ways of preparing for sermons, I, I usually take the text of scripture and I put it in a word document. I take all the notes out and then I just start working with it. And then I'll go to the original language if there are verses there that I may need to grab um, or words there. And then after I've gotten my outline, an idea of what I want to share, I then go to some other guys that I'm comfortable with and say that I want to see how they preach the sermon. Well, one guy had 41 messages on this sermon, uh, on this uh, text. Another guy that I really like, um, he wrote a commentary series. He has 19. Another guy that I listened to, okay, he brought it down to three, but he preaches for a whole hour every week. So to be honest, I was getting a little overwhelmed with how I was going to go through this. But what I want to try to do is this. I want to try to pull out some key principles that I think we're going to find in the passage. Well, the first thing I want you to do is to figure out who did he pray to? Who is he praying to? It's pretty clear from this passage that he is praying to whom? He's praying to his father. And that's important. Um, He calls him father in in verse 2. He talks about him as holy father. He talks about him as righteous father. I think that's important to keep in mind that our prayers, uh, first and foremost, should be to the father. What God has given us is access to the father 
through the work of the Son, by the mediation of the Spirit, that the, uh, the Spirit is working in our lives to connect us to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has given us access to the Father. So it's the Trinity that's allowing us to pray, but primarily our prayers should be focused towards God, and that's who Jesus is praying to. He's praying to his Father. What, what I found interesting about this was that this was a very intimate prayer. Did you hear the passion that was there? Did you hear how Jesus was just praying to his Father? It was a close relationship. Um, it's a knowable relationship. He said that I know you, God, and I want my people to know you as well. He's a knowable Father. You know, we just passed Father's Day recently, and, and some of us had struggles with our fathers. Our fathers may have been distant or abusive or negligent or whatever it may be. There's not a father in here that's perfect in this room. Even the best of fathers are imperfect fathers. But we have a father in heaven, and Jesus wanted you to know him who is perfect, who loves you, who is there for you, who will never leave you and wants your best. So he's a God that he wants to pray. He wants us to pray to the Father. What an awesome privilege to pray to this Father. And this Father is a personal being. If you're sitting in this room today and you don't know God, what Jesus Christ said here was that to have eternal life is to know God, the intimacy of being with him. He's not distant. He's not negligent. He is there. He hears you. He knows every aspect of your life from the beginning to the end. That's God. And that's the Father that Jesus Christ is longing to go back to, and that's the Father that he's longing for you to know. So who does Jesus pray to? He prays to his Father. The second thing that I wanted to ask is, whom is Jesus praying for? Whom is Jesus praying for? And it's pretty clear. If you have the NIV and some of the other translations, uh, I use ESV, Um, But you'll see that it will break down. Verses 1 through 5 tend to be that he's praying for himself. Verses 6 through 19 is that he's praying for his immediate disciples that are there. And then verses 20 and following seem to be praying for those that are going to believe in Christ because of the work of the disciples. That's you. And what amazes me, I mean, I was blown away by this prayer. Jesus is praying for you right now if you're in Christ. See, I know that, but to actually think on the night of his betrayal, hours before he is going to be rejected, denied, left, beaten, the law that he has authored has now going to be turned on him, the, the group of men that are supposed to be sharing about him are going to put him through a mock trial. He's going to be beaten and scourged for me and for you. And what is he praying for? He's praying for his glory, his father's glory. He's praying for his immediate disciples, and he's praying for you. Did you hear anything in that prayer that says, escape this pain, take this pain away from me? No, It wasn't there. It was all about magnify me. Help me to magnify you, God. And help my disciples to magnify you. And help those at the chapel in Warren Valley to magnify you. He's praying for himself. But even in praying for himself, he's praying for God's glory. He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for you. So who does Jesus pray to? He prays to his father. 
the holy, righteous Father, the awesome, privileged Father, the personal Father. That's the one he's praying to. Whom does Jesus pray for? He prays for himself, but even in praying for himself, he's not saying escape the cross. He's praying that you give me the ability to glory in the cross. What, look here in verse 2. He says, Father, the hour has come. Verse 1, I'm sorry. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. If you're familiar with John, John has been in this gospel, has been constantly talking about the fact that the Father, the hour hasn't come, the hour hasn't come, the hour hasn't come. Jesus has been saying this over and over and over again. But a turn has happened in this gospel. John, when he wrote the gospel, the first 10 or 11 chapters are primarily the first three years of Jesus' ministry. He spends the last 10 or 11 chapters focused on his last week of his ministry. He starts to zero in on what Christ was doing that last week because it's the most monumental week in the life of the church. It's the most monumental week in your life if you know Christ. And he zeroes in on what Jesus Christ is saying. And he's saying, now the hour has come. How is Jesus Christ going to glorify his Father? That kind of got me thinking. Okay, so I, I go to text and I ask questions of the text. How is Jesus glorifying his Father? Jesus is going to glorify his Father, not just through his life. He's been doing that from the womb till now. He's been glorifying God constantly in thought, word, attitude, and action ever since he's been in the womb. He's been doing it for all of creation and even before creation. But he's saying right now that I want you to be glorified in my death. It blew my mind. That God, I want you to take me down Calvary's path and I want to hang on that cross and I want to bleed and die primarily for your glory. I want to show the world your holiness and I want to show the world your love. I want to show your righteousness and I want to show them that there can be peace. You remember the psalmist said that righteousness and peace kiss? Well, they did it right there at the cross. I want to glory in you and I'm going to glory through the cross. Let that sink deep into your mind. When you think about the way you pray, the th way I pray, is that the most important thing in my life or in your life? The glory of God, even through the struggles I'm going through. God, don't help me. My prayers mostly are help me to escape the struggles. Oh, it's so immature. Help me to glorify in you through the struggles, Lord. He's praying to his Father. He's praying for himself, for his disciples, and even for you. But the third thing I want you to think about is this. What does Jesus pray for? There's six things I want you to pick up. They kind of cycle in and out, okay? So what is Jesus praying for? I'll tell you ahead of time if you want to take it. Protection, protect them. The second thing that he is constantly praying is that I want you to sanctify them. Protect them, sanctify them, unify them. Fill them with your joy, Lord. Embrace them in your love and then bring them to me. Okay, so those themes. Number one, protect them, Lord. Look with me in verse 11. It says this, and I am no longer in the world, 
but they are in the world. Jesus is, is predicting his death, and he's predicting his ascension. He's predicting that he is physically leaving them. And you remember throughout this, this sermon, um, throughout this uh, upper room discourse, he has been constantly saying, I'm leaving, but I'm bringing you my Holy Spirit to be with you. I'm going to be with you through my spirit. I'm not leaving you in that way. I'm leaving you physically, but I'm bringing the spirit. Okay, he says, verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And he says, Holy Father, do what? Keep them in your name. His request is that they be protected by the name of God. In essence, he is saying, guard them, God. Protect them, God. Keep them safe. It's a terrible illustration. I don't even know when I'm going to use it. But, and it's probably when you sit there and say that, you probably should just stop, right? But you know me. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm thinking like I'm out of my house for months, right? My house is left alone. I have given it to the care of some friends and I've said, here are the keys. Here's the access to my house. Protect my house. Even more physical than that, I got a friend who's got my cats. And I my, they're my kids' cats. They love these cats. We couldn't take them with us. And this, and this friend is taking care of them. Why? Because I knew this friend loves animals and would take care of these cats. And it's so small and insignificant. Our houses, our cats. Jesus Christ is looking at you. That's so much value, more valuable than birds or sparrows. You're of infinite value to him because he was willing to send his son to die for you. And Jesus Christ says, I have to leave. Father, protect them. So what's the reason why? He says, I'm leaving. They're going to be left here in this world. You know, this world is not a, a good place. I mean, it's, it's got a lot of pain. Um, there are theologians that uh, talked about the three mortal enemies that we go through. Uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is this system that is anti-God. It hates God, and it is constantly trying to tell you anything but God. That's the world system that we live in. And then there is world, the devil, Satan. You know, some of us either underestimate Satan or overestimate Satan. We underestimate Satan because we don't ever think about the fact that there is an evil one that hates you if you are aligned to Christ. He is battling against you day after day, and he's got a myriad of angels that hate you and are looking to trip you up. Satan looks to accuse you and to tempt you. He knows he can't rob your salvation, but he wants to rob you of every ounce of joy in your life. And so there is the world, there is Satan and, the and Satan, and then there's the flesh, that internal enemy, that sin nature that's been with me from the very time I was conceived, and it's been here, and it just hates God. It hates the fact that we're sitting here. Why is it that you'll fall asleep in reading in the Bible and praying? Because it hates hearing that. And you've got to fight with the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of his name. And he's saying, Jesus is saying, Father, protect them in this world so that I can be glorified. There's a second thing that Jesus prays. He doesn't just simply say, protect them by your name. I should tell you this, by your name. A person's name means something significant. 
oftentimes the name means their character. You know, for you to say something against my name would be to offend my character, to offend my reputation. So when Jesus is saying, Lord, protect them by your name, it's his character. I want you to protect them by your character. But where do we see God's character? In the word. And it's protecting you by the word because of the character of God who wrote the word. You're going to see these cycles that are going to happen over and over again in this passage. So this first one, I want you to protect, their name, protect them by your name. The second thing I see here is I want you to sanctify them in your truth. Sanctify them in your truth. Look at verses 17 and following. It says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is what? Truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus starts by saying that I want you to protect them. And the ultimate protection is that you know God and you have eternal life in him. And that's a huge privilege. Then the second thing is that he guards you, he protects you, he keeps you safe by his name through his word. And then he says, I want you to sanctify them in the truth. But he says, the truth. He doesn't say a truth. He says, the truth. What's the truth? It's the word that you hold in your hands. That Jesus Christ is going to make you holy and sanctify you by the truth. Sanctify means to be set apart, to be made holy. It's through the truth. As you hear his word, as you receive his word, as you accept his word, as you obey his word, you start to show that you trust God and you start to become more and more like him. You're sanctified. You're set apart. Jesus said here um, an interesting passage. He says in verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrated myself or sanctified, your version may say, made myself holy. Well, isn't Jesus already holy? I mean, he's perfect. I mean, we wouldn't have a savior if he was imperfect. He's flawless. So he's not saying that he's making himself holy. What he is saying is this. I have lived a holy life, a set-apart life for you. And he's not only set apart in his holiness, but he's set apart for the mission of God. And the mission of God is the path towards Calvary. So he's been set apart in holiness. He is holy and righteous and good. He has been set apart for the mission that God has given him, but he's been set apart to go to the cross for you and for me. And if that's the mission that Jesus had, what's your mission? Our mission is to to know him and to love him and to glorify him and then to display him to the world is exactly what Jesus did. So he says that I, I want you to protect them by your name, Lord. He says, Lord, I want you to sanctify them in the truth. He's saying that in that truth, you will, they will know you. They will know me. I missed one other thing. Verse 19. He says, for their sake, I consecrated myself. It was for you that Jesus Christ lived and for you that Jesus Christ died, if you know him. That Jesus Christ in the womb was perfect. I wasn't. Neither were you. Nature of sin within us, 
even before we even were able to speak a word, there was a nature of rebel sin within us. As a little child, as a beautiful baby, they have a nature of sin that lives within. That rebel nature starts to make its way out when we get to the toddler years. You start to see it, right? And definitely when you get to the child and the adolescent, and definitely as I look at these adults, there is a rebel nature that comes out of us, the nature of sin. Well, Jesus Christ lived every stage for them, for you, consecrated, perfectly righteous. So protect them, Lord, by your name. Sanctify them in your truth. The third thing that I see in this passage is that I want you to unify them for your glory. Unify them for your glory. Look with me in verse 21. I'll go to verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their words. That's you. That they may be what? One. Just as you Father are in me and I am in you that they may also be in us so that they that the world may believe that you have sent me. I don't know if you catch it, but his request is that there be unity among the chapel people. And as there's unity among the chapel people, there's unity and that unity among the chapel people is going to be a mission for the world that the community here in Washington, that the community in Warren County, and that in the world, this church starts to display the glory of God through your unity with one another. When you turn on the news today, there's disunity, disloyalty, disharmony, all the pain and the chaos and the confusion that is happening in this world because there is not oneness. But this church is supposed to be something radically different. And Jesus is praying on the night he's betrayed, that you be one. One. I, I also find it interesting that if we're protected by God's name, his word, we're sanctified by his truth, the word, we are unified also by the word. The reason why we have such discord and uh, uh, chaos that happens in the world oftentimes is that everybody does what is right in their own eyes. But when we have the word of God, what it does for us is this. There are different personalities in this church. I tend to be more of an introvert. Some of you are extroverts. Some of you got your hands up in the air. Some of you are sitting down very stoic. I mean, they're different personalities. That's okay. But are we unified by what? The truth. Are we unified by the praise of God, the glory of God, and the mission that he's given us to share the gospel message to this world? See, without any truth, without an objective outside standard, everyone will do what is right in their own eyes. It will bring chaos and confusion, discord, disunity. It will all be I want, I feel, I desire. But what's going to bring us together as a people of God is this. If we become unified in the gospel message and we get unified for the glory of God, what he is saying is this. That God, I want you to unify the people at the chapel at Warren Valley so that they will glorify your name and that they will go and make disciples of this world. What a powerful message that will be that Jesus Christ is praying for you on the night that he's betrayed. Glorify them, glorify yourself through them and then make disciples through them. Give them a mission. Take them out into this world. So I see the steps here. It seems like we believe the gospel, then we have oneness and unity, 
and then we have witness to this world. So protect them, Lord, by your name. Sanctify them in your truth. Unify them in your spirit, in your, for your glory. And the fourth thing I want you to consider is this. Fill them with your joy. Fill them with your joy. Can you back up to verse 13 for me for a moment? In verse 13, it says this. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my, what? Joy fulfilled in them. How much anguish is in this world? How much sorrow? How much pain? How much discontent? How much depression? How much anxiety? I don't have a job, either as a counselor or as a pastor in this way, if there were none of these in this world. But we have it. All the calamity, all the misery, all the pain that you're going through right now or that you know people that are going through takes away the joy. It's all part of living this sin-cursed world. Can you put yourself in the disciples' shoes? You have left everything for this Jesus, and now he's leaving you? And one that you thought was your closest friend, he's betrayed him? And you said that our leader, Peter, is going to deny you? I mean, they must have been rocked to the core. All the chaos, all the confusion that is happening in their lives. And Jesus wants to comfort them with his promises. And he wants to comfort them with his presence. I'm leaving you physically, but I'm not leaving you ultimately at all. Satan knows he can't take your salvation away. But he wants to rob you of your joy. John 10.10 says this, the thief comes to what? Steal, to kill, and destroy. Jesus said that the foundation of our joy is the Father's will, Christ's work, and the unity of this body. Protect them, Lord, by your name. Sanctify them in truth. Unify them for your glory. Fill them with your joy Embrace them in our love. (sighs) How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that that he should give his only son to make this wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turned his face away as wounds which marred the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that left him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gift, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I can't give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. God will never love you less. He can't possibly love you more if you're in Christ. 
that love, it's not just a love like. It is a love as. As he loves his son, if you are in Christ, he has embraced you in that love. That is why he's saying, the love that you have for me, Father, I want them to know that you have that love for them as well. I know that there's some in this room that question whether you are loved and you've been rejected by people in your lives deeply. But I'm telling you that the Father loves you. Jesus loved you enough to die for you. And the Holy Spirit loves you to be with you every day. All those ups and downs, he sees those things. When you grieve him, he still loves you. He loves you. What an amazing, amazing thing. It's amazing that it's not even like I will be loved in the future. I am already loved today, right now. The last thing I see from this is not only protect them by your name or sanctify them in your truth, unify them in your glory, fill them with your joy, embrace them in our love, but the last one that jumps out at me is that be with them forever. Be with them forever. Verse 24, he says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, once again, you're a gift, from God to his son. I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you have loved me before the creation of this world. He wants to bring you to him. He has never left you if you're in Christ. I was just teaching through Romans, you know, it's amazing that even when I don't even know what to pray and I've got groans, the Holy Spirit is taking that as request to God. And, and Jesus Christ is interceding for you right now if you're in Christ. And what he says is, I want to bring you that you may see my glory. Now, is this selfish? Jesus, you want to show us your big mansion? No. I want you to bask in the glory of my Father and the Father wants to show you the glory and give glory to Jesus. Jesus humbled himself for the obedience to the Father. And now he wants to be exalted so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. He displayed his glory in the cross. He displayed his glory in his ascension. And he will display his glory in the demonstration of the gospel through you and through me. Go back to verse 4. I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me where? In your own presence, with the glory that I have had with you before the world existed. It's clear Jesus Christ was not created in the baby Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ has always been. He's co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. And it's clear in the sense that the Old Testament says that God will not share his glory with anyone else. So in the fact that Jesus wants to be glorified with his Father, it's a clear sign that Jesus Christ is deity. He had the glory before. He gave up that glory to come down here for you, and he's going to get back that glory in heaven. And every knee, whether you trust him or not, will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this prayer blew my mind. 
I've read this prayer multiple times, but for some reason, I don't know what it was, it got me. It convicted me. It convicted me about the ways that I pray. And for what do I pray? It convicted me. There isn't a day that goes by. I, I pray multiple times. I pray with every person I disciple. They know that. Some of, them, some of you are sitting here. I pray with them. I pray for them. I pray with my kids. I, I, they know that. But there is, there is something different about this, this prayer of Jesus. The first thing that convicted me is that it's okay for me to pray for myself. <laughs> You know, as pastors, sometimes we have this tendency to be worried, so worried about you that we don't even think about telling you to pray for us. And we struggle with that, right? But Jesus Christ, on the night he's betrayed, is praying for himself. But even there in praying for himself, who's he praying to? He's praying for the glory of the Father. That I can pray for myself, but am I praying, take this thing away from me, God? Or am I praying, God, be glorified through this thing in my life? That's the first thing that convicted me. The second thing maybe it'll convict you, is praying for you. You know, we have our um, bulletin every week, and there are prayer requests in there, and there's probably about five or six prayer requests that are in there. I pray for those that I disciple in this group. I pray for everybody on that prayer list, and when the prayer lists come out every week, I pray for them. But I was convicted about the fact that Jesus Christ didn't just pray for himself and he didn't just pray for his disciples, he prayed for them all. And if I have been given the privilege to be one of your under shepherds, I should be praying for you all. So over the last couple of weeks, I just took our membership journal, our membership list, I started praying for you guys, each one of you. Now I'm going to try to systematically and frequently discipline myself to pray for you. I would love to be able to get a pictorial one so I could see people's faces. You, know, you get names, but you know, I was like, I really want to get the face, and I, I want to be able to pray over you and your family. I mean, I'm just, I'm just convicted by that. To regularly, consistently, frequently, not just for the prayer list, but to pray for you, because many of you don't even put your prayer request on the prayer list. I want that. I was convicted by that. And that is probably a call to be a member of this church, that if you have been here and you claim to this be your body and you have put yourself under our leadership, I want you to be a part of our family. And I don't want you to just be on our, our directory. I want you to be part of our membership, that you're part of our community. I mean, that's what, I mean, I would love that. Pray for myself is okay. Pray for you. I need to not just pray for my disciples. I need to pray for all of you. And then it's the prayer content. What am I praying for you? Am I praying that the, the glory of God be manifested in your life? Am I praying that he protect you by his name, uh, sanctify you, unify you, fill you with his joy? Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just get into, here's their prayer request. Here's their problem. I bring that request to you. I got to go deeper. Got to go deeper. The last thing I want you to think about that I've been convicted by is the supremacy of Christ the sufficiency of Christ, the priority of Christ in my prayers. I don't get an access to the King of Kings, to the God, the Father, if it's not through the work of the Son. So I'm convicted by that. 
Can I make a couple of suggestions before we close? Keep a prayer journal. This is actually literally my journal. Notes on life. And uh, many of you are in here. I keep a prayer journal and I list out the prayers and I list out when the prayers are answered. I love it. I've been doing it for years. Keep a journal. Because you can see how God has been working in and through your life. He has answered so many requests that if you go back and just, I sometimes I pull out my journals. When I'm going through a difficult time, I'll go to my bookshelf and pull out an old journal and look at the notes, sermons that I've heard or prayer requests that I've offered and, and just blow my mind how God has just answered over and over and over again. Keep a journal. I think our church needs to be, and all churches need to be, more of a church of prayer. It convicts me as well. You know, I mean, I know it's a different time, but I grew up, we used to have church on Sunday morning and then Sunday evening, and we had a Wednesday evening prayer meeting. Why do church prayer meetings go by the wayside? I don't know. But I do know that individually in this church, if this church starts to pray like Jesus, he starts to transform lives. You know, you heard Tim and Doug talk about this all the time, this transformation that can happen because we are, God changes people through what? Vital relationships. And if I love you, I should be praying for you passionately. So glory in the Son today. Magnify the Father today. Feel protected by him. Sanctified in him. Unified in him. Filled with his joy. Embraced in his love. And near him. Lord, I thank you. And praise you. Father, I don't ever want to say that any one part of Scripture is more important. You know I struggle with that when it comes to Romans. All 66 books, Lord, are, are such an amazing gift from you. And Holy Spirit, I, I thank you so much for um, giving us the word. You inspired human authors and their personality comes out. We see John's personality here, but it was your word that you gave to them so we could trust it. All scripture is inspired by you. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Lord Jesus Christ. Father, the reason why we desperately need a savior is because we are fallen and we can't get up. So, Lord, I pray for those that don't know you. It's interesting, Father, that in that prayer, Jesus said that I prayed for my own, but I don't pray for the world. So, Lord, I pray that you would um, do your work in our lives. Help us to go into the world and evangelize. Help us to glory in you. Help us to be so very grateful for what you've done for us. And as you're going through these struggles, Father, comfort us with these promises Comfort us with your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.